0: to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com.
1: Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. Greg, it's good to be back at the Helm here. It's been a number of weeks since we've recorded anything together. I blame Christmas and New Year's and hip surgery and all those other good things. We've been talking a lot in these past weeks about market volatility. With good reason. There's a lot going on, as always. But market returns are only part of an investor's overall experience. And we need to focus on some other things too. And so for that reason, we have a guest speaker today, Greg. Did you know that? I did know. Yes, thank you. Of course you. you knew that. His name's Howard Atkinson. Howard is the president and CEO at Pascal Wealth Tech. He previously held positions in wealth and included heading up things like Horizon ETFs back in the day. He's an author who's written four books. That's exactly four more books than you or I have written, Greg. Yes, yeah, that's right. Exactly four more. He has board experience on audit, governance, nominating and human resources, compensation committees, and is chairman of the board. He holds a CFA, a CIMA, which Greg, you and I also both hold. We're a good company. And we'd like to welcome Howard to the Free Lunch Podcast. Welcome, Howard.
2: Thanks, Colin. Happy to be with you guys.
1: Let's
3: just kick it off, Howard. You've been in the wealth management industry for about 35 years or so. Tell us about your journey. What's your story?
2: Colin's touched on some of it, but I'll go back to it and then. It's hard to believe, Greg, that I've been in the industry for over three decades, but that's the fact. So I actually started as an advisor in the late 1980s, same thing that you guys are doing. And I date myself when I say the firm because it was McLeod Young and it predated Bank of Nova Scotia buying McLeod Young Weir, which is now Scotia McLeod. So I was there in the late 80s and early 90s, and then became a mutual fund executive in the 90s. And I was with both McKenzie Financial and CI, both around today, two of the largest independent fund managers in Canada, and then had the very good fortune in the early 2000s is to be recruited over to Barclays Global Investors when they were launching this little thing called iShares. Ironically, the regulators wouldn't let us call them iShares in Canada because they're mutual fund trust units technically, these ETFs. There was only the XIU, there was only one ETF in Canada that at that time. So we launched in Canada under the iUnits brand. You may or may not remember that, but everywhere else in the world is iShares. Fast forward five years, the regulatory turnover at the OSC, and they came in and they looked at our products and they said, you know, you should call those iShares because <laughs> they trade on the exchange like the shares and not units. And so we said, thank you very much. And we changed it what the rest of the brand in the world was for Barclays, which was iShares. And of course, we know today that ETFs have taken off and are one of the best personal finance products out there that investors use today. I was there for six years and then left and co-founded Horizons ETFs and also was the founding chair of the Canadian ETF Association. Left in 2015, Horizons, and since that time, I've been a board member, advisory boards, an investor in different ETFs, companies, private credit, and various fintechs. And my current gig is as president and CEO of Pasco WealthTech, and we provide digital solutions to financial advisors. We have an onboarding and workflow management platform. We have a client engagement and loyalty program, and we have a behavioral finance informed risk profiling tool. You've seen a lot of changes
3: over the last 35 years, as you've mentioned growth of ETFs, for example. You've been an advisor. You've been on the what we would call the wholesaling side. And where do you see the wealth management industry going from here? Because certainly you've been seemingly on the leading edge of the changes through your whole career.
2: Despite the fact that the whole industry has been democratized because the access to information is a lot easier. It's a lot easier for individual investors if they care to to be able to compete, if you will, or manage money for themselves. But the problem is They have to have the time to do that. They have to have the knowledge to do that or or the thirst for knowledge. And they have to have the desire and really want to do that. So unless they have all three of those ingredients, they're better off to work with a financial advisor and let the professionals handle things. But I was reflecting on this podcast this last week. And when I go back through my career, I think about how advisors used to add value or thought they added value. This may resonate with you and, and your listeners. And so in the 1980s, when I started... The advisor is, well, I pick better stocks than everybody else. And that didn't work out really so well in terms of added value or alpha. And then so in the 90s, they said, okay, we'll let the fund managers pick the stocks, but we'll pick the fund managers as an advisor and we'll pick better funds. And that proved to be very challenging as well. And then in the 2000s, with ETFs coming out, I pick better ETFs. And you can read that as I do a better job at asset allocation. And at least that got closer to what is adding some value, but I think that the most dependable and repeatable alpha for an advisor to help clients with has almost everything but the actual investment selection itself. It's asset allocation, it's rebalancing on a regular time period, it's how do you deal with tax consequences, so that's asset location and tax loss harvesting and all those other things. And then surprisingly, and this is a study that was done encompassed Morningstar, Vanguard and InvestNet saying where do advisors add the most value to investors and all those things that I mentioned were important, but the number one added value at about 150 basis points per year was behavioral coaching. In other words, incorporating behavioral finance with your clients. And Greg and Colin, I'm sure you do that each and every day with your clients, work with them on that aspect of their portfolios, which is not mechanical. It's really psychological.
1: That is a big one because as you say, picking stocks, we call that Neanderthal-like behavior, knuckle-dragging behavior that hasn't evolved. Picking funds of people that pick stocks is kind of the same thing. It's just you have a different Neanderthal. I don't know if this is going to get through compliance, but I'll keep going with it. So we're big into be diversified. Don't worry about that stuff. That stuff will take care of itself. I know with your background in ETFs, exchange-traded funds, I think one of the biggest mistakes I also see people making is Picking ETFs like stocks. So instead of owning just the market, they own the REIT index, the mining index, the energy index, a leveraged gold index, and they trade them like stocks. Does that resonate with you?
2: Absolutely. And in fact, when I wrote the new investment frontier, the first edition, at the end of the chapters, we interviewed different experts from the industry. And one of my favorite interviews was with Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard and he was always a legend in my mind. And when I spoke with him, he's obviously a promoter of indexing. It's hard to beat the market. But what he didn't like about ETFs is the tradability of them. And he felt that investors would overtrade them and not just buy and hold for the long term where you ended up with better results. And that's been proven time and time again. He didn't like that aspect of them, but he did think that obviously lowering fees for investors was a worthwhile proposition. In the end, he endorsed ETS, but he wished they They're more like an index fund, which made them a little harder to trade.
1: The behavioral side kicks in there, where I think people feel like they need to be more active for some reason. They're fingers on the pulse. But really, behaviorally, if you just let markets grow over long periods of time, you'd be way further ahead. There's
2: study after study out there that says not only do individual investors underperform the market or a benchmark but they actually underperform the fund. If they just bought and held the fund and didn't do anything with it, they do better than trying to get in and out at the right time. And I'm sure you guys deal with that each and every day and probably lose sleep over it.
3: Well, a little bit, we will move on to what you're doing right now, but I just wanted to take this ETF discussion a little bit further that Colin brought up because, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe there's more ETFs out there now than there are actual stocks to invest in. There's a lot of ETFs and a lot of them slice and dice the market and Whereas the original ETF was an index fund, and now ETFs are active, or at least there are active ETFs, which essentially makes them just like any other actively managed mutual fund. In your view, has that been a good progression of the ETF space, or has it diluted the beneficial effect of buying an ETF that mimics an index or something or a benchmark and just sticking with it?
2: But with full disclosure, I'm biased here because at Horizons, we launched the first active ETFs in North America. It was really kind of my baby. What I thought about it was that it was more about lowering fees than anything else. And obviously, if you can shave a half a point or a point or more off of management fees, end results are going to be better. But it's interesting to me that most of the areas of investment management and finance now that individuals deal with obviously came out of the institutional arena, and indexing was no exception, and ETFs were no exception. In fact, when ETFs were first launched, first on the TSX in 1990 with the tips, and then three years later, 1993, the spiders in the US and the S and P 500 were launched. And I remind my American friends all the time that we were three years ahead of them in launching ETFs, and I finally got. Acknowledging of that about five years after I kept pounding the table on it. But when they first launched ETFs, it was the institutions that started buying. They thought they were great too, even though they had the power to do indexing on their own. They adopted ETFs before the individual investor. But if I reflect back on, on some of these occurrences, I would say, generally speaking, I believe that institutional investors are given too much credit and retail investors are not enough in the marketplace today. And it goes back to what I said earlier, if you have the time and thirst for knowledge and desire, you can do a pretty good job yourself. If not, hire an advisor who can do a really good job for you as well. But where I'm going here with the indexing is it comes down to performance. Everyone wants better performance. They want to beat the benchmark. They want to beat the market. They want to do this. And institutions, of course, are benchmarked most of them quarterly, some of them annually, against some sort of blended index, stocks, bonds, real estate, infrastructure, what have you. And guess what? they generally underperform. They've got all the resources. When I was at Barclays, we had 60 PhDs on staff and their conclusion was it's really hard to beat the margin. <laughs> and they were right. And so when you move this to the individual space, and of course, they adopt individuals says, "Well, oh, I need to beat the benchmark. I need to beat the market. And guess what? Just like the institutions, they underperform. And as I mentioned earlier, they often underperform even the funds and ETFs they own because of the buying and selling. And so I think the way around this is for individuals, you really should be goals-based. What do I want to achieve with my money? Like secure retirement, buy my first home, provide a legacy for my family, and build a portfolio to achieve that in whatever timeframe you're looking at, whatever is reasonable, and use the guidance of Colin and Greg and both of you to do that. And forget about what the market's doing and whether you beat a benchmark or you didn't, because who cares at the end of the day? I've got my secure retirement. I'm sitting on the beach somewhere. I don't really care if I underperformed or outperformed the S&P 500 at that point.
1: It's so true. I mean, you're speaking our language. That's been our biggest, I don't want to say obstacle, but it's come up a lot in the years. I remember we had a business coach one time and she said, what do you use for portfolio performance reporting? And we said, well, we don't. And she said, well, what do you say when people ask how they're doing? And we would say, you're doing fine. <laughs> it just blew her mind that people didn't want to see rate of return by percentage when we wanted people to focus on their performance by goal achievement.
3: One of the changes, and I'm sure you've seen it in spades and possibly is what you're involved with now, is just the increased focus. I didn't start in the 80s like you did, Howard. I started in the 90s. But again, the same basic experience where most of us were focused on attracting clients and making stock recommendations or mutual fund recommendations. And now, as you say to us, I think Colin mentioned this came up at a previous WealthStack conference, the investment piece is solved. There's no need to debate the investment side of what we do. And it's really more about planning, planning, goal setting, financial planning, will and estate planning, that kind of thing. How have you observed that change over the years as well? Because I'm sure that's obviously a big part of what's happened in your career.
2: And then it comes through in the studies. I didn't mention financial planning when the studies talked about where you add the most value. It's up there as well. I think that's where everybody is pretty much at now. It's not as sexy, though. I got this great financial plan. It's not very good cocktail party talk, but I bought this stock and it tripled. That's way more exciting. So I think that's just human nature, being able to brag about it. the returns I got. Everyone's looking kind of for the home run. And that's great with say, I'll call that maybe your play money. A little bit of play money over here, knock yourself out. If it goes to zero, it shouldn't affect your life goals and your long-term financial plan. I think that's the easiest way for most people to deal with that is just segregate that money, go have fun. But your serious money that you're trying to achieve these big life goals, make sure you have a plan, you stick to the plan, and you do all the things that we've talked about already that are going to make the biggest difference in creating a little bit more of an incremental return. And as you guys know, it's amazing if you can eke out half a point, a point one and a half, two 2% more per year, how that magic of compounding over the years makes a significant difference in how much money you have to work with at the end.
1: Oh, we did an episode last year on Bobby Bonilla Day. Are you familiar with Bobby Bonilla, Howard? Do you know who that is? No. So he was a baseball player. I'll spare you all the details, but she's looking look it up. Bobby Bonilla. The New York Mets actually celebrate Bobby Bonilla Day because he had a choice at the time to either take a bunch of money at that time or leave it alone and then take payments for a period of time. He left the money alone and is living off the payments. He's made more in the payments than he ever made playing professional baseball. So they call it Bobby Bonilla Day. And there's a number of these people out there. And it's the power of compounding, just what you talked about. That half a percent or 1% or more per year makes a big difference. So to me, I think the biggest issue, though, and I'd like your comments on this, is that a lot of people think that you only get that from investing. I would argue that if you can save 1% or 2% more per year and have it invested, it's kind of the same thing as if your investments grew by 1% or 2% per year. Could you comment on that?
2: It doesn't really matter where it comes from. And when you think about all these ways that advisors can add value to investors or investors can increase their returns, it's kind of the flip side of the same coin. Like if I get another one or two percentage points out of performance, that elusive alpha that we all try and find is very hard to find. That's great. But you can do the same thing, as you mentioned, by saving more, by reducing your tax bill, by rebalancing portfolios one of the simplest ones out there that you can do that adds value over time asset location just making sure you've got registered accounts you have the right investments versus taxable accounts and then of course you've got the behavioral coaching that i mentioned earlier all these things and you start adding them up and now you're up to three percent three percent to four percent a year you can add value if you do all these things and do them properly, and that's huge that could be maybe half the return of a balanced portfolio over the long haul.
3: Let's move on. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your current company, Pascal Wealth Tech?
2: Basically, we work with financial advisors across Canada to make their investment practices more efficient. and We do that by providing digital solutions, and currently we have three. Now, I'll just mention two of them briefly and maybe we'll talk a little bit about behavioral finance, which I think is the most exciting and more applicable to the audience. But we have an onboarding and workflow platform. And what your audience may not know is, is all of the admin and compliance issues that you and your teams and every financial advisor team works with. And I'm sure you're like the rest that we talk to, they hate it. It's a necessary part of the business, it's a real time suck, and it really takes up to 50% of an advisor's time away from what they could be doing with helping clients achieve better results. And so if you can use technology to reduce that time, increase efficiencies, make compliance experience smoother, then it should be better for not only financial advisors, but it should be better for the end investor. And then our second solution is we talked to many advisors and end clients. And what we found is that there's not as much frequent contact as you might see in other industries. Sure, you get statements and you might get a call for RSP contribution and other things. When you guys are doing podcasts to stay in touch with people, that's great. But when you look outside of wealth management, you look at other industries, I mean, pretty much every industry and company has some sort of client loyalty program. Yeah. They really are pervasive. And so whether you're an airline or a clothing company or Canadian Tire, and even McDonald's just launched one. And we thought, well, the financial advisors could do the same thing, touch their clients on a frequent basis with non-financial information. Perks from brands, so you get discounts off things, and even events that you can run. And so we've built this program called Living Wealth. And advisors can utilize it to stay in touch with their clients on a weekly basis. And it's branded with the advisor's profile and colors. So from the investor standpoint, it's coming from you. You can have some input into what goes into it. And it's just a nice way to be able to keep in contact with your clients. Talk about things non-financial if you have dialogues with them about what's in there. And we've had some pretty good success with that. And then the last tool is our behavioral finance tool. And we've partnered with Syntonic, our behavioral science specialist out of the United States. And so it's a risk profiling tool that you share with an investor. And it takes 10 minutes or less to fill out. There's 28 questions. And when you're finished, investor gets a report and the advisor gets the same report, and then you have a dialogue with that investor. And as I mentioned, it's one of the best ways to build relationships and understand people's situations. And it makes those difficult questions a little easier to ask because when the client gets the report, there's sort of three areas it talks about. It talks about their thinking style, which is what we believe to be true. That's our thinking style. So there's things come into play like overconfidence and anchoring is part of this thinking style. Then there's a behavior matrix that deals with things like future orientation and loss aversion. And then the last one is baseline matrix, which is factors that influence our actions. Every investor goes through all these things. And the last one is these things like financial engagement, which is understanding key financial concepts, or just what situation you believe you're in now. That's kind of your baseline matrix. So Having a common understanding between the advisor and the investor of these things, and there's no right or wrong answer to any of these, but understanding that persona is going to, we believe, make for better investor outcomes in the long haul. And in fact, the OSC is doing a study on that right now because the typical risk tolerance question is, can you withstand a ten or fifteen or twenty percent drawdown on paper? You know, you pick the one in the middle, but then when it actually happens to you, like the global financial crisis or oh in 08 or 2022. And you actually are down that much. It's like Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And so you need to be able to go beyond those questions to really understand what's going on. And that's what behavioral finance does for the end investor. So that's why we think it's an important tool.
3: It's so true. We're back in that point that many of us that have been in the business a long time have been in before. And that is even with what happened in 2020 with the market down 35%, but rebounded before anybody had a chance to even look at their statements for the month of March. So many investors today, you know, I'm thinking millennial aged investors, didn't have a lot of skin in the game probably during the global financial crisis. And it's one thing, as you say, to say, oh, yeah, I could withstand a 20% or 25% downturn. It's all theoretical, but I'm sure you, Colin, and I clearly remember how it felt in January or February of 2009, when the market was now down 50%, not 35, not 20, but 50. And Why are you bringing this up, Greg? Like, I'm and, still recovering from this. Exactly. The point there being is that preparing people for what can happen is so important because nobody can imagine what it feels like. Nobody can imagine swimming in the ocean and being attacked by a shark. I mean, that's something that you only think you can imagine. The behavioral finance piece certainly seems to be a more important aspect of the advice industry than it ever was before. It always was a problem, but it was dealt with in different ways. The stakes are big now because people's retirement or whatever their financial goals are sort of dependent on it.
2: And the problem is a lot of this is behavioral finance textbook theory. I mean, there's courses on it. Terrence O'Dean was one of the early pioneers of it in the US. And I think he was at USC Berkeley. It's great, but you're not going to ask your investors to read textbooks and become experts on this. So you need a tool that's easy and succinct to use, but is effective and gets you to the point where you're getting the results. And that's really all that matters. So in my case, I'd come across as overconfident as most financial advisors or ex-advisors would be. But knowing that going in, that means that, I'm more likely to over-invest, over-trade, do market timing, that sort of thing. So knowing that going in, if I'm working with an advisor, they can push against that and make sure remember, we talked about this, you've got it in your report, this is a time that you're going to do that, so don't do that. And you get better results if you lean against those tendencies that are going to make your outcome not as good as it could be.
1: I was just thinking of a couple of things you're mentioning those. Firstly, the investor profile questionnaires. From a behavioral perspective, I would argue there's a lot of framing bias because they say, what did you say, Greg? If the market's down 10%, how likely are you to sell out? Nobody can answer that question. If you're only given three answers, you're just going to pick one. There's a framing bias built in there. Secondly, from a behavioral finance perspective, because Greg and I are also very well-versed in behavioral finance, just like you, Howard, but I think a big mistake we often make, I've made for sure, is you hear somebody and you can hear their biases in their conversation with you. And so you feel a need to call out these biases and you say, oh, wait, that's self-attribution bias that you're doing right now. But it's not good enough just to tell somebody their biases. There has to be a way of coming up with a plan, whether they know about it or not, to deal with those biases, not just describe them. Is that the work your company is trying to do?
2: The work we're trying to do is through this report, you end up also, you get a risk score and then a dynamic risk range. The reason there's a range is that people's risk tolerance changes dependent upon what's going on in the market and what's going on in their personal lives. So it's not a static number. I think that if you pulled investors and did a questionnaire, a typical questionnaire with them when markets are doing really well, the risk tolerance number would be different than if you did one now or did one at the end of 2022. When things have gone badly, the risk would subside after the fact. So, the whole idea here is to provide here's your basic risk tolerance, here's the range, and here are some of the biases, behaviors, and blind spots that you and I, as the advisor, should be aware of so that we can coach you through whatever market we get into. A quick, funny little story the founder of Syntonic, when he went down this rabbit hole of behavioral finance, he's really an expert in this field he built his first questionnaire and he ended up, you're going to laugh at this. He had 171 questions and he gave it to his wife to do. And his wife got about 45 minutes halfway through it. And she said, honey, no one is going to fill this out yeah. ever. <laughs> he goes, yeah, you got a point. I'm just trying to capture everything. Anyway, he's refined it. And now the questionnaire that we use is 28 questions long. You can do it in 10 minutes, 15 minutes tops. Five of those questions are your typical risk capacity questions, the drawdowns, time frame, those sort of things. The ones you see in every single questionnaire. The other questions, 23 questions, are all behavioral finance. You can't game them. You just give your best answer, but they work. And he's refined this process over in the team there. They have seven PhDs on staff have refined this process over time. So that's what you're getting at. You're getting into the soft side, not how old are you, your time horizon is, and all that other stuff. That's the Aerofinance
1: part of it. Well, yeah, because from those questionnaires, another error I find is, I just assumes a younger person has a ton of risk capacity because they have time horizon. Well, that person may or may not actually have that risk capacity in them just because they're young or just because they're older. We have a lot of older clients that actually have a lot of risk capacity because their portfolio is being left to uh, future generations, So their time horizon is actually a lot longer than what a traditional questionnaire might say.
2: I totally agree. And then you've got family dynamics, whether it's a spouse or next gen. So one of the things we've we've done with this report is you can have a spouse or next gen or a business owner, co-business owner, do the report as well. So they'll get their own report, but then we do a pair analysis between the two of them. And I'll give you a great example. We did this with a woman in the financial services industry and her husband is a firefighter. Anyway, they did the investor EQ They came up with the same risk score, bang on, but her range was higher and his range was lower. And he's the firefighter, don't forget. When I talked to him about it, they said, well, now we know why we always fight about our investments because she said, the financial services industry person said, I always want to be more aggressive in our investments than my husband, the firefighter. And perhaps he felt his job was risky enough that he didn't want to be risky in investments. I don't know, but it doesn't matter. But understanding that now, if you're, as their advisor, talking to them, you know exactly what you're dealing with there, which simplifies things for you.
3: Well, Greg, what do you think? Well, I think maybe I'll just finish off by saying, Howard, it's interesting when I look at your career, you started off as an advisor, probably advising a few hundred investors, 300, 400, however many people you dealt with. And over the course of your career, you're touching many more investors along the way. And now by helping advisors, do their jobs better there's potentially tens of thousands of investors that can benefit from this so congratulations on taking what you do to the maximum number of positive outcomes hopefully
2: i appreciate that greg my wife would just say i just can't hold down a job well, that's what she would <laughs> <say>. <laughs> well i was going to say that too
3: but i thought you know on a podcast i should
1: be a little nicer positive yes that's yeah. right <laughs> all right well let's finish with a quick speed round three questions speed round what do you say just for fun sure
3: Well, Howard, what do you do for fun when you're not working on Pascal Wealth Tech? I'm
2: an avid golfer. When the weather permits, in the off season, if you will, I like to work out, pretty much work out every day, travel and read.
1: Oh, cool. What are you reading? Right now, actually,
2: I'm reading two books. I'm reading Sapien, which has been out for a while. I just hadn't read it. My kids have read it. And I'm reading a marketing book that's also been around a long time called Crossing the Chasm which is about taking adoption of fintech through from the early adopters to the early majority. And some of your listeners may have heard it before. But over the holidays, I read a book on the 72 Summit series. I quite enjoyed because I lived through it and watched the series. And so getting some of the inside scoop from the players and what really went on was very good. I like that.
1: That's really cool. I was going to ask something about that, but it's escaped me, Greg. So let's just move on with the next question. Anything you're binging on in
3: terms of streaming services or TV right now? I've
2: been watching
1: Tom Brady,
2: Man in the Arena. Very, very good. I've been enjoying that. Over the holidays, we did a lot of this with uh, the Americans. And watched The Crown again for the second time just because of the Queen. My wife and I were in the UK, London, and Scottish Highlands in the summertime and visited a lot of the spots where once she passed away, they drove her through and the Castle and Edinburgh and all the rest of that. So he said, I will watch that again because that was was kind of a cool experience.
1: Excellent. That's good. Well, listen, Howard, we really appreciate you joining us today, taking that time to do that. Greg, are we recommending that people look up Pascal Wealth Tech? Absolutely, we are. Yeah, of course. And why not? And thank you, Howard. And I hope you have a great day. It's been my pleasure, Colin.
2: Greg, thank you very much. Have a great 2023.
0: Thank you for listening to the free lunch podcast hosted by the CM group at CIBC Wood Gundy to subscribe to this podcast, to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets work.com. We'll see you next time on the free lunch podcast. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates, or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking, or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets Inc. 2023.